My book, The Spirit of Work, Timeless Wisdom, Current Realities, is now published. By interweaving science, business, and sacred texts from the world's great spiritual traditions, The Spirit of Work offers a high-level but approachable way to view and structure work from individual community and institutional perspectives. As part of the book's reach and outreach, I will be adding some solo podcasts and interviews with authors who write to build healthy workplaces to give you a taste of how the book's concepts can enhance your workplace experience. To get to the Spirit of Work links and purchase from online stores directly, click on the online store of your choice from my website, which is shiftworkplace.com slash the spirit of work. Make sure you put hyphens in between the words the spirit of work to ensure the correct URL comes up. So that's shiftworkplace.com slash the spirit of work with hyphens. And that's how you'll get to your goal. Looking forward to your feedback. Hello, Culture and Leadership Connections podcast listeners. Today, I am very honored to present to you Dr. Julie Pham, who is the founder of Seven Forms of Respect and the CEO of Curiosity Based, which fosters curiosity in the world, starting where most people spend the majority of their waking hours in the workplace. Dr. Pham got her real-life MBA by running her family's Vietnamese language newspaper, the Northwest Vietnamese News in Seattle. She has worked as a journalist, historian, marketer, nonprofit executive, and management consultant. Dr. Pham is an award-winning community builder who has built partnerships among unlikely allies, such as tech, labor, government, between ethnic media outlets, immigrant, refugee, and people of color-owned businesses, and between philanthropists and social entrepreneurs. Wow, that's quite the list. Dr. Pham wrote The Seven Forms of Respect, A Guide to Transforming Communication and Relationships in the Workplace, based on 15 years of experience helping people from diverse backgrounds. So I'm really honored to have you on the show. Welcome, Julie. May I call you Julie? Yes. May I call you Marie? Yes, you may. So tell the audience a little bit more of the personal side of who you are. Yes. So I was born in Vietnam and my family came to the U.S. We were boat people from communist Vietnam. My dad was sentenced to re-education camp for three years and he said, we can't stay. And so that has really been a big part of my identity. And I grew up in Seattle. Hmm. When I was growing up, my husband's family sponsored three Vietnamese refugee families. So when I met him, I also met the refugee families that had become really good friends of the family. And I heard lots of great stories, so I'm really interested to hear yours. Oh, that's so great to know that your husband has that history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my family did something similar, but not in the area of Vietnamese refugees. It's just interesting to see that connection. So you grew up in Seattle and you are still working in Seattle now? Yes. I went away for a while. I did undergrad in California, and then I went to the UK for my grad school, and I was away for about 10 years. And then I came back in 2008, just at the start of the recession, to get my real-life MBA to work with my family in the newspaper that my parents started in 1986. That was such a huge learning experience for me. Mm, I'm sure. And you were able to apply your studies you have a PhD in history at Cambridge, and you're a Gates Cambridge Scholar, and you graduated with magna cum laude, so you've got quite a, an academic background, and then your family's Vietnamese journal. Marie, it was quite a change, right? Because I had spent pretty much all of my 20s in school, and in academia, as you know, is quite different from the business world, and it was going from theoretical to real-life 
needs. And what I love about entrepreneurship is I feel that it is the essence of human creativity because we can create all of these products and services. And yet, if you don't have clients who actually want what you create, it has to be relevant for them. And so then there's this constant adjusting that happens. And so that's one of the things that I really learned in the business world was that I constantly need to change and to listen to people um, and to adapt. Mm-hmm. And it has to be, as you said, relevant to them. It has to meet a need. And when you can articulate that clearly, then it works so much better, doesn't it? Yes. In fact, it doesn't work if you don't. <laughs> so True. True. <laughs> so can you share a couple of incidents from your childhood that you believe made you into the person you are today? I remember when I got my English name, my American name, my Vietnamese name is Hoi Hung, which means to remember one's homeland. And I remember when I was five years old and I went to school and my, I was registering for a kindergarten and my parents turned to me and they said, now we need to give you an American name. And they had studied French in Vietnam. And so they said the name Julie, which is Julie in French. Mm. And so that was really formative. Um, and so from that time on, I actually used the name Julie and I would be called Hung at home, which is a nickname for Hoi Hung. And it wasn't until I started studying Vietnamese in Vietnam did I start using the name Hoi Hung. And I really appreciate having two different names. You know, sometimes people say, oh, do you feel that you're, you feel any less than because you had to change your name? And I feel like I get to have two names. And so that experience was really formative for me. You know, every time we get a new name, it's a new identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people have given me names too. We have a friend who we sponsored from Slovakia to come here and she always refers to me as Marushka. And she changed her name recently. And I didn't know who she was when she contacted me, but she said, hi, Marushka. And I knew right away that it was her. And uh, my sense of who I am as Marushka is quite different as Marie Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) or Marie or Alexandra or Lexi or the many other names that I have. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or mom or (laughs) (laughs) grand-mère. Each title gives you a different sandbox to play in. Yeah. And I feel that there's an intimacy I feel when speaking in Vietnamese and people are using my Vietnamese name. Yeah, of course. So you kind of had to reacquaint yourself with Vietnamese. Yeah. So actually, once I entered school, because I grew up in the generation where a lot of immigrants were encouraged just to assimilate and speak English. And so once I entered K through 12, I stopped speaking Vietnamese and my parents worked all the time at the newspaper. And so they weren't really at home to help ensure that the language was uh, preserved. And they also just wanted to make sure that we assimilated and did well, because that was the thinking back then. And so I actually started studying Vietnamese again formally right after I graduated from college. And then I spent on and off about five years in Vietnam in my 20s. And luckily, Vietnamese is a phonetic language and it's a Romanized language. And so because I grew up hearing it a lot, I was able to learn it quickly. Mm -hmm. In many places in the world, people are still not recognizing the importance of maintaining the mother tongue. And many languages have been lost and so have people's ways of seeing the world because of that. So it's very important to maintain language and to preserve it. And I don't know, when I was studying a second language learning, I found out that at the time, learning eight languages at the same time for children is no problem. I don't know if it could be more, but learning eight is entirely possible. They have moments where they're confused, but mostly they don't get confused. So we thought, oh, we have to just, you know, speak the language of the place that we're in. And in some cases, people said, I'm not going to learn the language. I'm never going to learn the language here, which is another side of the story. But that capacity to learn languages for children is huge. And, you know, sometimes people ask me, oh, do you wish your parents had 
made you speak Vietnamese. And I recognized that my parents were really busy working. And so my relationship to the language, having learned it later, I just just have a different relationship with it, really deep appreciation. And because I studied it formally, I feel like my vocabulary is very deep, but not wide. Mm -hmm. So I can talk about history and revolution and Marxism, but I can't uh, necessarily talk about mortgages in Vietnamese. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So what about your adolescence? Anything from your teenage years that stands out for you? Well, I remember we made a move from Seattle, the city into the suburbs from when I was entering middle school. And that was transformational too, because for quite a while, it was really hard for me to make friends. And Mm -hmm. I actually had some pretend friends for a while. And it wasn't until I was able to get into, um, I think they call it the the gifted track where I actually was able to have a community. And so in that, actually, because for a long time, it was hard to make friends, I never relied on any one group. So I was one of those floaters in high school where I would just float from different groups to different groups because in a way I didn't want to rely on any one group. And And Marie also, I remember when I was in elementary school, I was sick for a weekend. My best friend made friends with all the popular girls. And when I came back, she said, you know, we can't be friends anymore because I have this new group of friends. And that was also for a while, me just having make-believe friends. And uh, because I was, I didn't have anyone to talk to. And so I think from that, I was just, well, I don't ever want to feel like I'm only part of one group. You know, it's sad that teachers don't have the insight that Helping children make friends and helping them learn to accept and appreciate each other is part of the job. And teaching them that respecting and appreciating and encouraging each other is more important than anything you could master in an academic topic, because that's Mm -hmm. what's going to give you skills for life. And so many children go through school alone and their parents are busy working and their teachers don't notice. And it's just sad to be that lonely, Mm -hmm. but you managed to find ways to be resilient and to move past it. Yeah. I think it really did build that inner resilience. And if we're not taught as children, there's still opportunities as adults to, I think, learn how to build relationships. Many and many adults have problems with making friends. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the people I interviewed on the podcast is a young man who came from the Philippines and was very good at technology and felt really isolated when he was growing up and very lonely. And he decided as a young man that he was going to master that. And he now is a millionaire. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what he does is he teaches young men in tech professions how to have conversations with people and not feel awkward about it. Mm. Interesting, eh? Yeah, that is really fascinating. Can't really underestimate that skill. It is something that can be learned and it continually needs to be practiced. For sure. And it evolves. So from the groups you were born into, what would you say has most influenced your sense of culture and self. You were born into your family, into Vietnamese culture. You Mm -hmm. were in Seattle. I don't know how old you were when you came over on the boat, if you have any memories of that experience. I was only two months old, so I don't have uh, memories of that experience. I would say, though, that the refugee experience has been very formative for me. And because when we think about the American dream story, people talk about, oh, you were coming to the U.S. because of to for economic mobility. And yet for me and my family and for the, the Vietnamese refugee community, there was a push factor. It was like we, we felt we needed to leave because life under a communist government, there'd be too much censorship. It'd be too hard. Plus torture and death. Yeah. You know, my, like I said, my father was in re-education camp for three years. And so there's pride in being a refugee. And I think it's sometimes interesting when I talk to people who maybe don't know that many refugees and it's like, oh, there's kind of a sense of almost pity. And I actually, we feel a lot of pride. And- and strength, resilience, yeah, grit. Yeah. 
Yes. And I mean, just even what we've been able to create and build in the US, I mean, even the, if you think about the manicure pedicure industry, the way that it is today is largely because of Vietnamese entrepreneurs. So the refugee experience has been, I think, a hugely influential in my life because also I recognize that we came here for freedom. And I look at my friends and others in my community whose maybe their ancestors came here. It represented the loss of freedom. And so that's just been a huge part of my identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you probably know that the two groups of entrepreneurs that make the most progress in their businesses are refugees mm-hmm. and women over 50. I didn't know the second one, actually. Yeah, so refugees have nothing to lose and they mm-hmm. know how to throw themselves off into the ocean or off of the yes. cliff and just expect that they're going to find a way to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do. And women over 50 have finally gained the status that they never got when they were young. So when they enter into uh, entrepreneurship, they get respect right from the get-go. And so they start at a much higher level than people who are not in their position. Mm. Well, for sure, intergenerational trauma certainly affects people. They may not be able to articulate it, but all of those people going through what they went through in Vietnam is not going to not affect Mm-hmm. The DNA of the subsequent generations. So that's one piece. But the other piece is just how amazing the human spirit is that it can overcome things and develop new things and create amazing new experiences for ourselves. Yeah, I think I saw a study that showed that Vietnamese immigrants are actually among the most optimistic. Mm-hmm. And I really do believe that that's a strong part of my outlook in the world. I'm constantly looking for the opportunity in something and just, well, what did I learn from this? What are the silver linings? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's been my experience too. I just finished doing a contract with a Vietnamese university and they were the most lovely, optimistic, mm-hmm. positive and harmonious people I have ever worked with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was so lovely. <laughs> it was really great, this particular group. I mean, they just really knew how to work as a team. It was beautiful. I loved it. Oh, that's great. Was that in Hanoi or in Saigon? Or? Um, it's in Hanoi. I can't give you all the details, right? Because I want to stick with your story, but I keep getting down a rabbit hole because what you say is reminding me of everything. (laughs) So being a refugee has really influenced your sense of culture as you were growing up. But then when you grew up, you joined other things and you also studied in other countries. So you have become a part of other groups. What groups have you adopted things into your sense of self and culture now? A sense of global citizen because I got to live in the UK and Germany and France and Vietnam throughout my 20s. And that was a really huge part of opening up my eyes to the world. I'll tell you a funny story. I remember when I was an undergrad at Berkeley and they had the international house and they're all the international students. And I remember as an undergrad, I was like, oh, they're like strange. They're international students. And when I got to Cambridge and I interacted with the locals, I realized I was an international student. Mm-hmm. And I was on the outside and that feeling was actually super helpful because I think it just helped me see things differently. And so I got really curious wherever I lived, like, Hey, I like one of the things I love going to the grocery store. I'd love to see how people shop and what they eat. And so global citizen, definitely someone who has had the opportunity to live abroad as an adult has definitely been a strong part of my identity. And also I would say coming from an entrepreneur family as well, making our own way in the world. That's also been a really big part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have anything else to say about that yeah, entrepreneurship? Just it's just that you got to make it work. Well, earlier, I talked about the creativity that comes with entrepreneurship, and there's a high level of risk taking, like a high risk tolerance that I saw my parents have and that I see myself having. And I, I realized that there is actually a difference for those people who 
and this is not to knock people who like steady jobs. It's just, it's like, it's just different because I see when I take a risk, even if it doesn't work out the way I expected it to, I'm going to learn from it. And so I think in that entrepreneurial community, there's also a strong focus on it's not just the outcome of like trying to get the business or whatever. It's about actually solving the problem yeah, and the process of getting there and learning how to do that. The thing about being an immigrant or a refugee business owner is that I think it's a reality check that there is no such thing as a steady job, mm -hmm. that at any point you could be dismissed that if you were employed by somebody in the mainstream of that country, that you're likely going to be underpaid and underutilized, mm -hmm. that you either need a side gig or you need to move towards the business or you just start a business because nobody will hire you. And I don't think when people haven't had that experience, I don't think they understand entrepreneurship in the same way. Marie, what you just said, it reminded me of uh, when I told my dad that I was leaving my nonprofit executive job in the middle of the pandemic so that I could start a, my own company. And I was really worried about what he would say. And he said, I'm so happy for you. Yeah. Because now you will have freedom yeah. and you will never have to worry about losing your job. Because there were times where I had, I was part of downsizing and, or contract wasn't renewed. And my dad said, I cried then. And I'm so happy for you. Even if you are paid less and you're working longer hours, when you're an entrepreneur, you feel more confident and more free. It's mm -hmm. kind of a strange paradox. But then you, when you start to learn the ropes and start to make money from it, then you go, you know what? I can earn my own salary and salaries of the people around me. Uh, you know, I can build this myself. And there's this, like you said, there's this sense of creativity that you can just build something. It's an exciting project. And also I get to build my own team too. I know as an employee, I know that there are certain expectations of the organization. This is what we're looking for. And now that I have my own company, I actually also have a small group of people, but just also culturally diverse and different perspectives and not necessarily trained in what we're doing. Because I mean, I'm self-taught in what I'm doing now too. So it's a feeling I think as an entrepreneur that's like, if I don't know it, then I'm going to learn it. Right. Or I'll find someone who can teach it to me or I'll find someone who can do it that we'll do together. Yes, exactly. There's this whole sort of, I don't know, energy in that. Mm -hmm. So I imagine it would have been different from the way your parents would have approached entrepreneurship because they're working within the cultural community, providing a service that their cultural community values. Mm -hmm. And so you're doing something that's outside of that or beyond that. And you have a diverse team. So it's a different approach, isn't it? No matter what, I think we have to find the community that we're serving because I mean, one of the things that I saw from my parents was relationship building was really important to them. Mm -hmm. And so knowing that sometimes you have to extend credit or there are going to be times where they can't advertise, but that doesn't mean that you can't help them in other ways. And then there's the reciprocity that will come later on. And sometimes it's not even in that direct, it's paving it forward. And so I saw that my parents did a lot of relationship building. And that's actually been pretty instrumental to my business as well, especially in the first year. Because if you ask me, well, who are your clients, Julie? And I'd say, well, they're like Julie's friends. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's no business without relationship. Yeah. And um, even if you think you're not creating a relationship, you are. People can come to you, oh, I've been watching your videos for three years and now I've decided this based on I feel like I know you, you know? So, what about temperament and personality? So temperament being what you're born with and personality being what you've added on through overcoming obstacles or not and educational experiences and experiences with the world. So what would you say you were born with temperament wise and what have you grown into your personality? 
Hmm. That's a really good question. I think I was actually always curious. I always want to learn things and ask questions and just talk to people. Even though I told you that there were times where it was really hard to make friends. I think once I realized that I didn't have to be with just one group of people, there was a lot of curiosity there. I think that something that I learned later on in life, actually, and this was probably my late twenties was generosity. Mm. And what I mean by that is that I used to think that to succeed, I had to be better than other people, like that there was only so much space at the top. And what I learned later on was actually, no, it works better if we can help one another. At the top, you've got sky and then you've got the whole universe. Yes, there is no limit and that it actually continues to grow. And I mean, I actually learned that by my best friend. Um, and I just saw how generous and loving she was and how she attracted all of these people around her. And I was like, oh, I want to be like that. And if I help other people be successful, then I will get to be successful too. Then I'm more. Mm-hmm. And together and we're, it's we're more. It really mm-hmm. is. It is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a very interesting comment. So from curiosity to generosity and then Mm -hmm. back and forth. Mm -hmm. Can you recall a time when you felt that your cultural understandings were just your own and Mm -hmm. you experienced a little bit of a culture shock or a cognitive dissonance? Yes. I remember when I first studied in the UK and I feel like actually living abroad or I should say living outside the US has really helped me understand how American I am. And so I remember asking, how far is it to get from Cambridge to London? And people would actually tell me in distance. They'd tell me how many kilometers. And I'm like, oh. And it wasn't until I got that answer did I realize I always think about things in terms of how much time it's going to take, right? So because I was used to like, it's 45 minutes by the express train. And if it's if you're in traffic, this is how long it's going to take. And or if you can also take the, the bus and it's going to take this long and or flying. It's I mean, I have really no sense of distance. Well, in Taiwan, it's the same thing. It's so crowded mm-hmm. that people asking for directions would never say, how far is it? It would have to do with, if you're traveling at this time, it's so congested, it will take mm-hmm. you five hours. And if you measure how many kilometers it is, it's not much. But if you consider the traffic and the congestion and the stalls and the accidents that will be in your way, mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to factor in three or four hours more than you would have normally. So I guess every place, right? It's time or it's space or it's some combination. Yeah. And I remember then um, when I first lived in Vietnam, uh, something that would happen to me over and over again is that my Vietnamese friends would cancel on me last minute. And Mm -hmm. I was getting really frustrated by this. (laughs) How is it that they don't know ahead of time so they could just tell me if they can't make it versus like telling me just before or actually even while I'm waiting. And so I remember asking a Hanoian friend and he said, oh, they know. And they knew beforehand. But they didn't tell you because if they told you earlier, then it would look like they were making a choice and the choice was not to be with you. And so if you wait till the last minute, then it's an emergency. (laughs) It's like they have no choice. And I was like, oh, I mean, I never would have thought of it that way. And it just made me realize how in every culture, there's just different ways of explaining things. Yeah, logic is different. It is logic within its own system. Mm -hmm. And it's not good or bad. It's just different. Right. Exactly. So how did you get around that problem? I'm really curious now. When I was living in Vietnam, I just changed my expectations. Did you find that if you asked differently, you got different results? You mean if I asked differently, if they could come? Because I have experience with 
a lot of Persian friends. Mm -hmm. And when I was first exposed to Persian culture, I was just very frustrated with the fact I'd say that when this, this, and this project is happening, would you like to take care of this piece of it? Because you're really good at it. They'd go, oh, that is great. I'd love to. And they would never show. And you have to ask three times. If you Mm -hmm. want a Persian to give you the answer, you got to ask three times. On the third ask, you're finally going to get the answer. So when I discovered that, I went, oh, well, that's going to save me a lot of grief. Um. <laughs> so if it was about, hey, come to this, the event starts at six, I'd be like, oh, yeah, can you come to my place at three? So I just kind of build in expectations in terms of time, or I would just basically know that I needed to keep it really flexible. Mm-hmm. And I would say I just became much more flexible because mm-hmm. then, you know, the thing is like the expectations that I had on myself, I changed it too. It's like, you know what? It's okay. And mm-hmm. I would drop by people's homes unannounced. <laughs> like I would never do that in the US, but because I saw that happening a lot too, I was like, okay, well, this is what's acceptable here. So yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that's great. That whole flexibility part was probably something you added into your personality too, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So coming from all those different cultural moments of how do I deal with this? And a lot of it was learning to be more flexible and more relaxed about what was happening around you. So you've written a book and I'm really interested in this book. I want to know what motivated you to do it. What's the process that you went through to write the book? And why did you choose that particular topic of seven forms of respect? So when I came back to Seattle, I started doing a lot of uh, community building work. And that was part of my real life MBA. So I would facilitate collaborations among people with really diverse backgrounds and not just ethnically and age-wise, not just like referring to their personal social identities, but also functionally and work-wise too. And what I noticed was people just had different expectations about how they wanted to be treated. And so this is on top of seeing that as an American living abroad, and then seeing that even within my own country and my own city, and seeing that there could still be different expectations mm-hmm. of how to be treated. And so it wasn't just an ethnic cultural difference. No, cultural differences can be huge. Mm-hmm. And so for a while, I did a lot of work around different sectors and just, and so it was seeing like, huh, people have got different languages. They've got different expectations here. And I would see that there'd be a lot of friction because of that. And And I remember very clearly, there was this one team I was helping where there was an engineer and a labor organizer. And the engineer just kept asking all these questions. And the labor organizer was super annoyed. (laughs) She was like, why are you asking me all of these questions? Don't you trust me? Like, what, what, why? And he's like, but I want to know. And she just thought like, I've got this. Don't you, here's my authority. Like I'm the expert in this. And she felt he was actually challenging her authority. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of a light bulb moment for me. Like, oh, they just have different expectations here. So then I started digging in and I first started just asking people, hey, how do you like to be treated? And they kept using the word respect. And so I started conducting focus groups around this. And it's just like, okay, how do you like to be treated? And then when we started talking about respect, it's like, well, what does respect mean to you? What does that look like? And because I had an idea, I had a hypothesis of, oh, I think it's these six different kinds. And, um, and then in the research process was like, oh no, it's actually this one, this, this one's different. This one's different. Actually, there's a seventh one. And then just testing with an assessment tool we created and and also just uh, doing interviews. So that's how the research started. And then taking a break from the research for a bit and then revisiting it uh, this past summer and just going in again and just seeing the nuances of respect. Can you give me 
what are the seven forms of respect? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we use this acronym called PICA. Mm-hmm. So P-P-I-C-C-A-A. Mm-hmm. And it is procedure, punctuality, information, candor, consideration, acknowledgement, and attention. Mm, I have to read this book. Mm -hmm. And then we also see respect across three different dimensions. And so the first dimension is hierarchy because hierarchy exists in the workplace. There are people who have more power than you, equal power and less power. Mm -hmm. And even as an entrepreneur, my clients have more power than me, right? And my vendors have less power than me. Mm -hmm. So there's that. And then the second dimension is the directionality of how respect is being delivered. So it's, do you want to, are you giving respect? Are you getting respect? And what we saw was that actually people have different expectations of how they want to be treated versus how they want to treat others. So for example, think about how the people who love to surprise other people, but they don't like to be surprised themselves. Interesting. Or that person who loves to give you unsolicited constructive feedback, but they don't like to get unsolicited constructive feedback. Well, unsolicited feedback is never constructive. (laughs) (laughs) So it would um, be constructive if it were solicited. (laughs) Yes. Well, I mean, you know, that also depends on how you think about it. And then the third dimension is uh, what I call what matters to you. And that is actually separating the difference of what you think should matter how you should be respected, how you should give respect, which is, that's very cultural, right? Growing up, it's just like, these are the things that you're supposed to do. We learn those from our family and our friends and other kind of role models in our life. And then thinking, well, actually, what do I care about so much? What matters to me so much that I will do it no matter what, even if I know it doesn't matter to the other person. And that has to do with a lot of energy conservation because you think about the things that you do that you don't really want to do. And so you lose energy, you feel tired by it. And then there are the things that matter to you so much. It's actually part of your identity and like, and it'll give you energy. So the analogy I like to use is introverts and extroverts. So think about how introverts like to get, uh, they get their energy from being by themselves and extroverts get energy from being with other people. And yet introverts can still be with other people and they're fine. And extroverts can be by themselves and they're fine. It's just, that's not where they get their energy. And so they can flex. And so with the seven forms of respect, the idea is that respect is relative, it's contradictory, and it's subjective. Yeah. And when you're looking at intercultural studies, one value will trump another value depending on the context. Mm-hmm. So if you have, for example, a friendly Mexican experience, and then you go to a Mexican bank and feel like you've had a very unfriendly and cold and even mean-spirited experience, it's because the context has changed. Yeah. 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 What we hear people say is, oh, you've just given me a language to name what's happening, to understand mm-hmm. what's happening. Because otherwise, I think sometimes people feel, oh, am I being a hypocrite here? Am I because I want this, but I actually am not giving it? And it's actually, well, look at the power dynamics in the situation, right? So for example, maybe you want to get compliments from your boss, but hearing it from someone who reports to you might feel like they're ingratiating themselves. You know, like maybe you'd feel weird to hear, hey, from someone who reports to you, hey, boss, you're doing such a good job managing me. It might feel like, oh, I don't really want to hear that. But I want to hear from someone who has more power than me, like, hey, you're doing a really good job. Hmm. We could talk about this for a long time because I sure have a lot of things I want to ask you about. <laughs> and it's personal too, right? It's like, as in like, it could be different. I'm not saying that's a universal thing. No, I'm just saying that it's... I, re- it's, I really um, like it. I have no problem a- with it being <laughs> universal and personal at the same time. Why not? Uh-huh. Micro and macro. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'll just say one other thing is when we ask what does respect look like? And a lot of people talked about the golden rule. 
treat people the way that you want to be treated. And it was just, well, but what if people don't want to be treated the way you want to be treated? And then there's the platinum rule, which is treat people the way they want to be treated. The thing is a lot of times people don't even know how they want to be treated. (laughs) And so that's why I think about it. It's the rubber rule that it's flexible, that we can flex as people, but then there's a point where we flex so much that even a rubber band can break. Mm -hmm. And maybe sometimes people have a default that happens when some other needs are not being met with regard to respect. Yeah. Uh, So like in my family, my brother and sister, when they feel unrespected, they give lavish gifts. Oh, interesting. It's like a cry for love, right? Wow. Can I buy your love? Oh, wow. Yeah. It's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Any rate, that is something we have to talk about some more because I want to know more about it. And I will be because there are going to be some interviews where I'm going to be talking to people specifically about their books and commonalities between their books and other people's books. So that's coming up. That's in the works. Oh, exciting. Yeah. But I wanted to tell you a quick story that you reminded me of just the seven forms of respect idea. As a, a number of years back, I was teaching university students who wanted to be teachers of drama. Mm-hmm. And we were learning different drama techniques and how to teach them. And the class was divided between a few people of color, five or six Chinese and Taiwanese, which caused some interesting dynamics. And then young white kids who'd never really been anywhere or done anything outside of their own city or town. So they had very limited experience. So there was some really, what I thought, disrespectful behavior happening when we were trying to work. And you can't do drama if you don't have trust and respect. Mm -hmm. So we sat down in a group and I asked the question, what does respect look like to you? How do you know? And how do you feel when you've been respected? Mm -hmm. And I asked, one of the students from Taiwan asked her to go first. And uh, I asked all the, the Chinese and the Taiwanese students to go first, and then all the others. You could have heard a pin drop. And I will always remember what she said. I don't remember what the others said, but what she said is, I feel respected when people look at me and smile, greet me when I come into the room, and don't move away when I sit down next to them. Mm. I just broke my heart when she said mm. that. Why would people move away from you? Mm-hmm. When they move away from you and you're sitting in a circle before you do a drama activity, it's really obvious. It's deliberate and obvious, right? And nobody spoke after that for a long time. And then the others went around the circle and they said very moving things. And the entire attitude of the group changed from then on. They became helpful, supportive, encouraging, inclusive. It was so significant. Mm-hmm. And it was just that opportunity to say, what does respect look like to me? What does it feel like to me? And to have people describe it to you, how you feel when you're respected, it's just amazing. And since then, a lot of the works that I've done where people will say things like, I left a job because nobody would say hi to me in the hallway. And other people say, what kind of a bad idea is that if you have a good job that's paying well? Well, if nobody says hi to you in the hallway, you're being rejected by the entire company. How could you possibly want to stay there? It feels like a very directly disrespectful way of treating another human being. So I'm looking forward to reading your book to find out more insights on how to promote respect in multiple contexts. Mm -hmm. Because it's, I think, important to know about respect, but also how to promote it and build it around you. And to understand that different people have different ideas of what respect looks like and to get curious about, well, how do you see respect? Yeah. Getting curious about how people see respect would be probably Mm -hmm. the foundation. There are probably more things after that, but I'll have to read the book to find out. (laughs) So do you have anything you want to promote right now? 
Oh, well, I guess the book. <laughs> well, Ashley, you know what? The book is going to come out later on in the spring. Ashley, right now, I'd like to promote, I have a digital online course called The Seven Forms of Respect, the individual edition. And so this is just a self-paced course with about a little over an hour's worth of videos that people can just watch on their own. And and there's uh, transcripts and a workbook and I'd love to promote that. Wow. So what's the link? How do people get there? I'll put it into the show notes, but tell me about it. Okay. So I think the easiest way is if you go to formsofrespect.com backslash course, mm-hmm. then it, there'll be a direct link to the course. Okay. Perfect. So that would be a good introduction to the book, wouldn't it? Yes. Yes. Awesome. Right. Put me on your VIP list for the book so that I get it right away as soon as it's ready. Definitely. Thank you so much, Marie, for this. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I really enjoyed the questions you asked. Well, I enjoyed your answers. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Just keep remembering to be curious about ourselves and about other people. I just want to foster curiosity in the world. Mm -hmm. That's a very important mission. I love it. So thank you so much and uh, looking forward to reading your book. And thank you very much for honoring the Culture and Leadership Connections podcast listeners with your story. Yes, I'm really honored to be here too. Bye-bye. Bye. Dr. Julie Pham came from Vietnam to Seattle as a refugee after her father experienced persecution and torture in a re-education camp. To make a living while meeting the needs of the cultural community, her parents established a Vietnamese community newspaper and showed by example how to build relationships to make entrepreneurship work. After traveling and studying in different countries, Julie found she had maintained her original curiosity and refugee grit, but grown in flexibility and intercultural bridging skills in the process. I'm excited to read her book, The Seven Forms of Respect, which she wrote from research with focus groups and which promises to inform workplaces in terms of building work climates that are inclusive and welcoming and where curiosity rather than judgment characterizes their exchanges. Do you have a network of friends you could send this episode to? Share the Culture and Leadership Connections podcast episodes on your LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and tag me, Marie Gervais, on your post. You will be sent a link to download our very delicious Culture and Leadership Connections cookbook as a thank you for helping us spread the word. Thank you for joining us and may Culture and Leadership Connections continue to guide and inspire your day. Hey, podcast listeners, help us reach our goal of a thousand downloads per episode by going to followthepodcast.com slash culture and leadership. That's followthepodcast.com slash culture and leadership. If you type that into your browser and you use the and sign, not the word and culture and leadership, it will automatically adjust to your phone and then you can follow and rate. So followthepodcast.com slash culture and leadership. Thanks in advance for following and for reviewing.